Hi, I'm Sage, and this week, another question. What is the toughest RPG to master? Oh, I like it. <laughs> I know, we're trying out new things. <laughs> a nice, like, rehearsed intro. Madness. That's the only rehearsed thing in this entire podcast. Uh, so this question was sent in by a reader named Phil, uh, and we thought it'd be a great thing, because we'd, we'd actually been discussing a few different topics around difficult games or mastery of games, mm-hmm. uh, and why not use one that's only suggested? Uh, so we decided, through these strict signs of alternating, that I'm up first this week. Um, Deep magic, man. I know. We're, we're getting more and more complex. We've got a rehearsed thing. We've got a clear alternation of who's doing what. Um, so I've got a runner-up, which I'll just touch on briefly, uh, which is GURPS. Um, and there's, there's yeah. actually... It's not maybe for the reason you're expecting. No, I, I, I considered putting GURPS on the list... Uh, go ahead, go ahead and give rationale, and we will see. We'll see how it goes. So my thinking on GURPS is there are two primary ways to play GURPS that I see. Um, one of them is you use the fact that it's GURPS, and you play with everything in the book basically, which is um, where like the GURPS who's who books that stat up historical people are in. In which case, you've got a really complex game because you've got uh, a. You've got uh, Shaka Zulu and uh, Winston Churchill adventuring side by side, and you've got to have rules for all their different things, and you get into the complexity of rules, which I think is going to be a common thing in this podcast, and stuff to master that, because you've got to deal with all of these weird interactions between, like, what happens when I throw a spear and I block it with a tank? Um, That one's probably not that weird. Uh, well, unless you're playing Civilization. Unless you're playing Civilization, in which case that one apparently is very uh, surprisingly effective. Uh, but the other way to play GURPS is where you're playing GURPS in kind of a specific setting, which turns GURPS into a create-your-own-game kit, practically. Right. Uh, and I, I picked this up from my friend Luke. Um, I had always thought of kind of the, the main reason that I'd play GURPS as the throw-everything-in-it game. Uh, but he pointed out that GURPS is also a make-your-own-game kit. Uh, which actually, I've played more of it that way. I just I wasn't GMing it, so I didn't think about it as much. But that game is complex because you're responsible for kind of designing the game. You're responsible for building the genre in. Yes. Because GURPS does not build genre in. Which is a considerable part of designing a game, yeah. is setting up these expectations of theme and picking out which things are going to matter and which things aren't. And with GURPS, you're... If you're trying to play GURPS in pretty much anything but the let's just throw it all in genre, you're having to do that a lot. Um, now, the GURPS game that I ended up playing and that you were not involved in because it was before you got to Google was uh, it was Civil War era and we had somebody from Russian mythology who was immortal and we had, like, we all built characters based on insane things. So mm-hmm. we, we did the grab bag approach. Uh, but without pre-statted characters. Mm-hmm. One of the most crazy things I've ever seen. That was fun, but keeping figuring out how to move a story along, figuring out how to move a scenario along, figuring out what kind of next stuff would happen outside of the party was impossible. Like Because yeah. the book can't guide you, right? Yep. Uh, uh, my friend Ben, who is 
pretty much where I get most of my GURPS stories from, uh, either playing with him or his stories of these things, uh, I remember going to Kinko's with him and photocopying the pages out of GURPS Who's Who so that he can hand them out as character sheets. And it's just, these are your guys. Nice. Choose, uh, because I think... Character went, creation in GURPS is insane. Oh my gosh. Uh, the only times I've ever done it, I've used a computer program to help me with it. Doing it well is super insane, so... Yeah. So then the other GURPS game was uh, a GURPS setting called Reign of Steel. Um, which is basically the future portions of Terminator. Uh, like, the nice. machines have taken over, humanity is, you know, maybe fighting their last-ditch effort. Um, and we that was a great game, but part of that was that so much of the choosing what things to do in GURPS had already kind of already taken place either through the setting book, which GURPS setting books are great, right. or through Ben as a GM just kind of ignoring the things that he didn't want to have to deal with. And us as players... Uh, with the exception of, I think, me, most people just kind of showed up and picked a few things out of the book, and I sat down with the character creation software and got through everything, uh, and it it did make a huge difference in the character, really. Everybody else had just as memorable, just as awesome characters, but uh, mine was point by down to the yep. single point, and theirs were just kind of, eh... Yeah, groups. Groups is interesting. We should we should have a big discussion on generic role playing systems Oof. at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, so somebody suggest a question about what's the most <laughs> generic game or oh, something. Man. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, okay. So my real uh, my real pick, and mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that I ended up going first this week because I think that this is going to contrast with how we pick a lot of other things. Uh, at least I'm guessing at your picks. Very possible. And compared to Gerbs, um, is actually free market. So Free Market is a role-playing game by Jared Sorensen and Luke Crane. Uh, and it, it comes in a box. It's a box set. That's the only way to get it. And the box contains uh, materials that you need, including uh, special decks of cards. Uh, and the concept of Free Market is that you are people on a space station orbiting Jupiter, Saturn, one of the two, uh, somewhere off in space that is post-scarcity. So... Uh, you don't, all of your basic needs are taken care of. Death isn't really a factor anymore, except in really intense situations. Uh, you have a place to sleep, you have food to eat, uh, you can replicate things on Star Trek-style replicators, kind of. Uh, they're a bit more like matter printers, but like you, you can... All of, all of the normal RPG conflicts... Is gone. It's just gone. Yeah. Which is what makes it such a tough game to master. The procedures of the game are... Uh, they're a little complex. I mean, they're... Luke Crane's involved, so they've got some... They've got some teeth, but they're uh, not as crazy as some of his other games. The thing that takes a lot of wrapping your head around and that is tough to master is what happens in a setting like this. Because so many of our other games you have all these genre touchstones. Like, if we're going to do superheroes, we're going to be like, okay, somebody's trying to blow up the world. Done. There's a dungeon with something in it. There's uh, spies trying to infiltrate your organization. All of these things we've got lots of media sources for. Something is attacking your safety, your mm-hmm. food, your shelter, your whatever. Well, and compare this to Apocalypse World. Apocalypse World has an entire... You design things based <laughs> here on scarcity. scarcities, yeah. Yeah, all these things are scarce. Uh, here's a game where nothing is scarce. Right. Uh, or at least nothing particularly important. Um, so it's a game that challenges you to think about that world, and you don't have a lot of touchstones for thinking about how humanity interacts in that situation. So one of the side pieces of this question is, um, 
because it's going to take a while to get good at this game, is it fun while you ramp? Mm-hmm. Right? Because if the if the learning curve is too steep and it's not fun when you're not very good at it, yeah. nobody's going to get good at it unless they really, really are like, no, 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 I've heard great things about this when you know how to do it. Well, and I think that's the awesome thing about this kind of complexity is that when it's a complexity of the... Uh, setting that you're trying to understand and it's not a detail-oriented complexity like complex settings that are about remembering the lineage of some kingdom or something right that's not very fun when you can't get it and nobody cares but when it's trying to imagine how you act in this world where you're not fighting for your your next meal you know you don't really have to have a job like the thing you do is the thing you want to do um thinking about that world is a challenge but it's kind of a fun one and it's kind of a big part of the reason that the game exists. So you get to, it is challenging, but that challenge is a fun one, and it kicks off right from the beginning. So it's an enlightenment question. So the, the idea of enlightenment being that you can understand something intellectually, but not really get it, right? Mm-hmm. Not be able to apply it by default. And that's actually a theme in a bunch of my own. So. Interesting. I was guessing that we were going to have a lot of picks about like complex mechanics and stuff like that. Interesting. Like, role-playing gamers... I feel like in general, role-playing gamers, especially people that DM, are very smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to read this gigantic book and wrap your head around it and be able to apply it in an improvisational scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, you better be pretty quick on the draw, right? Well, in the improvisational, this is a, I was thinking about how to talk about mastery, and I mm-hmm. think the mastery of the rules as... The facts of them is less important than the mastery of the rules as an application. Right. Because uh, if you know them all, if you can reference them all, that may be great in the random scenario in D&D where you need to be able to, like, well, I know that I've got armor class 27 because of these yep. modifiers. Or in the all-the-time GURPS scenario, right? <laughs> yes. I know the combat uh, uh, pattern, which is just such a pain. Um, but, but I feel like as a GM... So let's talk, yeah, let's talk a lot more about mastery because uh, we can't just jump into mine yet. Gosh. I know. It's way too quick. Well, no, and there, there are more things about free market that I'm sure will come out in the discussion yeah, yeah, about definitely. master free market. Because, because mastery, like, your book is always in front of you. Um, and so at the, at the worst, you can say, okay, let's do snack break for a second while I look up the grappling rules, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you don't understand how the game text produces a game experience, then creating that thing, especially as a GM, or worse, in a GMless game where the group doesn't understand the same way how the game creates an experience, uh, everything's just going to break down, right? Yeah, and the the idea that the rules are a thing that you have to internalize in detail, uh, I mean, both of us work in Programming, basically. Right. And, uh, basically. We work in programming. Well, okay, sure. <laughs> uh, and the this often comes up, you know, when you interview at companies and stuff, is it knowing the intricacies of some language and being able to, you know, point out that the syntax here should actually be this, or this is the preferred way to do this, or is it understanding the complexities of the problem and being able to explain how you're balancing these challenges and stuff, the, the application of that tool is more important than a complete and total knowledge of that tool. And it's kind of the same way in RPGs. Like, if you can't figure... uh, I can't think of what the bonus for plate armor in D20 was. That really doesn't matter compared to 
knowing how to use the tools of D20 to make an adventure. Right. And it helps that a lot of the adventures you're going to be doing there are the kinds of things that are really easy. The, you know, somebody has something you want. Somebody has stolen something from you. Uh, you're poor and you need something. Like, right. And free market, the system itself, you're not going to have to remember what the bonus for play armor is. But you have to figure out what life looks like when uh, it it's not our life anymore. Uh, I've heard yeah. it described as uh, living in heaven, kind of. Your, your characters no longer have basic human needs for the most part. Uh, or rather, those needs are, are trivially taken care of. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting thing trying to create plot mm -hmm. in that particular scenario. Well, but it... Oh, sorry. I'm no, jumping no, no, all over no. this. I'm just continuing to think. Go ahead. The, the plot in that scenario becomes about uh, a lot of things that other games don't do very well. Sure. Uh, creation and networking. And like if, if you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from... Uh, and Step you, up the Maslow's hierarchy type of thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, you, you can just be a game designer now. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you can, you and your friends, uh, since you don't need to worry about if you can make money off of it or you know what other people are going to think. You just design games and not uh, you give those games to people. You don't even sell them because why would There's you sell them? To, yeah, sell the them the thing you want is for people to create things and for people to like your things and for them to... Uh, it's a social... There's a, a degree of social economy and kind of a, a buddy system and a like system. Um, everybody has, you know, crazy cyberware so you can uh, just, you know, send somebody a thumbs up or whatever. Uh, what do they call them? Attaboys. Um, right. And, and that's, that's more important than money because there's nothing really to buy. You want to share things with people and uh, you want to create things that people want to share. You want to be a contributor to society, which is so different than so many games. All right, which leads to this very interesting philosophical discussion about what is currency in the first place. Oh, totally. Right, like, cause it, do those become the currency just out on a different plane of, of need? Mm -hmm. Right, well, that's really interesting. And, and there, yeah, that's the uh, the thing. The the more you poke at the construct, the more these little bits of need and want still pop in. Right. Uh, the these things that you are not necessarily lacking in, but are still scarce in the sense that some people have more than others. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is interesting. Uh, th this is kind of a meta statement of the game that I think we as humans aren't wired up to understand we, we we're want machines like mm -hmm. we're we're dealing with wanting things all the time mm -hmm. uh and so once we deal with a situation where that isn't the case anymore to not want at all uh all our ideas of conflict and success like success is kind of tied to conflict because you've succeeded over something and that's gone so in running a game like that so one of the things when you were talking about programming languages um the there's a there's a saying we're gonna get way software engineering up in here. Uh, there's a saying that you can write Fortran or C or whatever in any language, uh, and it talks about and the idea is that there is an idiomatic way of doing stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you've played, uh, I don't know, if you've played, well, why not? If you played a ton of D and D, the idiomatic way of starting off is everybody's in a tavern, or you're in the dungeon, or here's my adventure, or, you know, you have all of these patterns that you can just fall back on. Mm -hmm. And so when you move from playing a game like that to almost anything else, part of you is going to start with 
well, I guess we're going to start in a tavern, because that's the way I know how to do things. Which is why some of these games that are coming out, like uh, uh, Diaspora, Fate mm-hmm. Core is uh, one of the early Fate Core 3 stuff. Um, Diaspora is a small kind of outer space traveler style, uh, let's go around and do cool things um, RPG that starts with Fate's normal build relationships with all the other players in a really hand-wavy kind of put down whatever you want that's cool and come up with a backstory. Once you've done this, you've generated all of the idioms for your session, Mm -hmm. which is great because it throws you off the default, well, this is how you all know each other because I needed to come up with something really fast, which is really, really important. And games that don't give you a really good way of generating kind of that initial scenario, Mm -hmm. I feel like they're in massive danger of just falling back to whatever the DM's idiom is. Well, and I think that the... That initial scenario, some games uh, kind of appear to gloss over that because the initial scenario is, I don't care exactly how you got here, but you are here. And right. this is like the... the We're classic, just not going to talk about the backstory. This is the uh, classic D&D answer that we've talked about before. You you start at the entrance to the dungeon. Right. And the idea that suddenly sitting in a tavern and deciding if you're going to go on an adventure is this weird, I, I want to know where that came from. I want to do a historical study and figure out how that entered as a... <laughs> that, uh, John Peterson, please, the next right, thing you right. on. Uh, how did meeting in a tavern get started? And it really needs to be gone. But uh, speaking of applying D&D genres elsewhere, or tropes, um, the... the uh, what did you call them? Idiomatic. Idiom, the idioms yeah. of D&D. Uh, I started mostly with D&D, some GURPS and stuff, and uh, started running Mutants and Masterminds for some friends, because we're superhero gamers, uh, and we thought at the time that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was just the coolest thing, that we were going to do superheroes and kind of Victorian, uh, well, you know... Go steampunk superheroes? Yeah, basically. Nice. Um, so we start with that, and we run into, first of all, some of the classic problems with superhero games that the games should really hopefully help you gloss over, of like wait, how do we know that the bad guy is attacking? I'm like, how do we get there? How do we get there in time? Um, all of these are classic superhero problems. That so many games, you, you have your session uh, in an entirely different game. We had somebody arrive to this big superhero showdown on a bus. Because for somehow we started <laughs> worrying about, like, how would the Batman-ish character get there? And, and you it, don't care, right? You, you turn don't. the page and Batman's there. Exactly. That's all you care about, right? But, of course, because we're gamers, we sit there and we're like, oh, well... Um, I mean, I guess he tops the bus, and it was it was horrible, but uh, <laughs> in this one, the Victorian Adventure, because I'm using the D&D idioms, because that was what I'd run the most of, mm-hmm. uh, the players beat some bad guy on a boat, and uh, because I'm thinking D&D, and I'm thinking there must be a reward for this fight, he drops his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and, 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 he's not even, and that's so not superhero. That's so not right? superhero. And the reward wasn't even, now that I say that, I think, oh, the wallet could like hint at his identity and there could be a whole bunch of... No, the wallet had money in it. Yeah. That was... I was telling my players, good job, you beat him. Here is... Here's some treasure. Yeah, here's some treasure. Here is uh, <laughs> five pounds, which right. when I said it in the moment, the players are like, wait, he has like weights on him? <laughs> which just made it even worse. Yeah. Oh, man. So this leads right into my answers because okay. talking about how mastery is, how can you get into the idioms of this other game... Uh, the first, I have two runners up and a main, uh, because I dropped two others off so we can talk about them later. Uh, 
Amber Diceless Roleplay. Oh, that's a good choice. Amber is by a, a Polish guy, I think he's Polish, named Eric Wojcik. Wojcik. Uh, and back in 91. Uh, and the Amber series uh, of novels is this very Eastern European fantasy series. So mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't read them, stuff like The Witcher is also mm -hmm. Eastern European. It's got a very different feel from kind of the Lord of the Rings Tolkien stuff. Um, kind of low fantasy awesomeness. And in the Amber series of books, the uh, main characters, uh, hardly protagonists, the main characters <laughs> are all like hyper-powerful members of royalty. Mm -hmm. And so in the game, all the players are hyper-powerful members of royalty. They're not friends. They're family. They're not friends. So at the beginning of the game, the DM does this big stats auction. Mm -hmm. And the auction is public, and then you can privately buy up some more points. So while you're playing this game, you generally know who's the best in one or two things, but you don't know who's beating you necessarily. Mm -hmm. So this game becomes about... Well, you know, how do we manipulate the conflict if we're in a conflict to be in my area of strength or whatever? But the more important thing about mastery is this is a totally unrecognizable idiom, right? You can't, you can't put them at a threat anywhere unless it's against another player character mm -hmm. because nothing else is a threat to these people, yep. right? The big story is this massive story of politics and continuation and, and you know, how do you deal with chaos? And that's totally different from all this other stuff. And there's no dice. The GM is going to make everything else happen. How do you do all of this stuff? How do you keep all of this information private that the characters can know but not share? Like, mm -hmm. it's just so way out of left field. Well, and there's practical challenges to the way that RPGs are normally conducted around a table once mm -hmm. you start them secret information and all that stuff, which is an entire other sort of mastery. It's a mastery of uh, the, the actual physical space and like uh, little tricks and techniques, note passing and stuff. Yep. Um, but uh, your stat buying, uh, it's such a big part of Amber, reminds me of a game that I'm unlikely to bring up somewhere else, so I just have to be <laughs> yeah, so do it. perfect for stat buying, because it is kind of a stat auction as well. Um, game called uh, Best Friends by Gregor Hutton, which <laughs> is about a clique of friends. Usually it's kind of a high school teen girl, uh, best, or... Um, that Lindsay Lohan movie, Mean Girls. Nice. Uh, it's kind of that, but you can also do uh, pretty much any clique of infighty frenemies. Uh, but the amazing thing there is you assign your stats by going around, going around the table and each person uh, names one of the other players and says for each stat that they're better than you at that. So it's, oh, uh, Adam's character is prettier than me. And that gives you a point <laughs> of the pretty stat. Nice. And so we all go around the table saying that, and who, so you are pretty because we all hate you for being pretty. Nice. You're prettier than us. Uh, which is this beautiful take on the same trope because you, you know everybody's stats and you know that you don't like them for that reason. You know that that's a problem to you. Kind of like in Amber, you auction off these stats and then you realize, oh man, I know that he's got a better whichever stat than me. I need to be careful of that because we're going to be playing we're against gonna each other. We're going to be fighting. Yeah. So, so it's, there's, there's some mechanical mastery that's difficult there too. Um, doing the stat buy in a group that has not done Amber before, the GM really, really has to make sure everybody understands the importance of it mm -hmm. and also push them to auction way higher than they otherwise would. 
because uh, if you have a stat buy where everybody's buying at like 10 or 20 points where you start with 100 uh, it's not as interesting as a stat buy where somebody is uh, egged on to go to 67 in warfare and then it's like wait I only have 30 points to do anything else with yeah. Um, so yeah so Amber's Amber is interesting uh, yeah we'll stop there <laughs> the, the, the number two runner up is uh, we've talked about this before but not as a main game the clay that woke yes by 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 Paul, uh, yeah. As as previously referenced, the big thing here again is an idiom change, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a game about the characters being protagonists in the world. Mm-hmm. This is a game about the world having really crazy shit going down, and you putting a whole bunch of yourself into that, and then having all the player characters interact with that and make interesting talk happen. Yep. Um, which is just such a Paul Sagan design. I, I mean, it's it's wonderful, and I, Paul's great. Paul, I, I got to game with Paul last year at a convention. He's, and I'd met him before. He's wonderful, but it's just such. It's it's the epitome of Paul is a game that makes you all sit around and say interesting things. So I there's there's other like again there's there's mechanical mastery interestingness here. Uh, the entire idea of doing this kind of fortune telling. To, to move where you're going to be talking next. Um, and it's just, there's so much different. And I haven't quite had the enlightenment moment yet. I feel like I feel like you could get there if with the right group. I have yet to play that, but I got to see uh, some of the session that you ran. Right. And I could definitely see, that was another great example of coming to a game and not quite having the idioms for that game. Right. Like, you, you obviously understood... All of the mechanics, uh, I'm not sure mastery is quite the right term, but there was no surprises of like, oh wait, how do we, you know, what's the bonus of this or something? All that was fine, yeah. but the idioms of how you actually make that happen, right. and even the idioms of communicating that to the players, that's an entire other sort of mastery. If you're the only person who have re- who's read or run the game, how do you communicate all those things to other people? Right, and I feel like Paul does communicate this relatively well in the book oh yeah that's uh, great. you know it's it's a it's a very well written book and he discusses how to do because we were talking about this kind of first session problem he discusses how to build the first session very very well um my problem is understanding where to go and and doing that mind shift that needs to happen to run it and cause interesting stuff mm-hmm. uh because interesting stuff in this game is not the orcs are coming out of the forest. Interesting stuff in this game is, well, how does slavery make you feel as a person, right? And well, and it's weird. It's not even just how does it make you feel. Right. It's what are like what are the effects of slavery on the way our Second society... Second order and third order effects. Yeah, right? like and the effects on other people, the effects on how you interact with other people because right. you have this... Yeah, it's... So it's it's a game that I want to 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 figure out, but uh, there are lots of those games, which leads me to the third and I think obvious answer that Sage avoided picking, which is Burning Wheel. Yes, yeah, I, I, I was briefly wondering if you weren't going to pick it, and we we're going to have this <laughs> hilarious discussion where uh... <laughs> we should have picked uh, the Burning Wheel is. So I had lots of games that are mechanically dense that could have been on the top of this list. Burning Wheel is not there because it is mechanically dense. Burning Wheel is there because it has 20,000 moving pieces that all fit together precisely, mm-hmm. and you can't change any of them because Luke knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> and, and if you don't remember one of them, 
things are going to be just subtly off. Like, you're like, your clock's going to take a little bit fast or a little bit slow, and you'll be like, you know, this isn't working as well as I wanted. Oh, that's right. This rule, and then everything moves again. Well, and I want to jump back, because it's not that you can't change these things, it's that it is a complex watch that you probably, the mastery is where you get to the point where you can, you know all those interlocking right. gears, and you can tweak them. Uh, and to Lucas' credit, um, the thing that a lot of people don't, pick up on the book that I think is absolutely key is that the game tells you that it's built on concentric circles basically you yeah. can just do the innermost circle and that cr- cuts out a lot of the uh, the gears basically the gears that are there are still intricate and beautiful and they work together great but they require a bit less of that remembering the AC, AC bonus of plate kind of stuff even that smallest circle though is pretty complex even that really smallest circle is, okay, your character better have beliefs that actually matter. Mm-hmm. They better have traits and remember to pay attention to them. They better have uh, instincts that are actually going to be relevant in game. They better have goals that are actually going to be relevant in game. Oh, and by the way, when you're creating your characters, all of these steps in character creation are going to need to be relevant in game. And by the way, as a DM, here are the things that you're going to think of as reward tokens that aren't really reward tokens. They're ways of making sure that the characters can proceed to do the things that they care about doing and signal to you that they're things that they care about doing. See, I feel like the, uh, and this may be a weakness to how the game is presented to some degree, uh, the, all that stuff is actually outside of the most inner circle. The most inner circle are the basic mechanics of the game, which are reasonably complex, and pre-gen characters, like from the sword scenario or something. Yeah, sure. Because it is, it, it does take some skill to cook up good beliefs and instincts and traits. Uh, well, traits are a little less so, but it, beliefs and instincts in particular. And to mesh those all together, there's a, a collaborative aspect to it where if everybody writes all their things individually and then sits down, you're, you're probably not going to get anywhere. Um, but if you take something, one of Luke's published scenarios that has pre-gen characters, uh, a lot of that stuff's done for you. Right, but but so talking about the first session, right, first mm-hmm. session problem, I don't think that the sword or the gift count really as a first session. Oh, I think the sword can totally be a first session. I think it's a, let me show you this game session, but it's not a first session, right? Mm. If you if you play the sword a couple of times, or you play the gift a couple of times, you can't, you can't like, I don't know if it's, it's that's not going to hold up for a group that wants to play a campaign. Oh, but I, I think that the spiraling outward the from there... I mean, the sword ends with some notes on these are... Take this into a campaign. The, these are directions where things could go from here if you're playing another another session. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, like with all good Burning Wheel characters, those beliefs, if you just keep on poking at those and looking at, okay, if this character believes this, that this implies these things about the world, and that means that I can knock over this domino to challenge that belief. Right. All of that stuff is still built into those characters... The sword is just, uh, in some ways, I think you could even drop the scenario of the sword and just say, these are pre-gen characters, and you cook up a little scenario. If you're, I mean, that's, again, it's concentric circles. The most concentric circle, I think, is running the sword with just the uh, hub system from Burning Wheels, so the most basic uh, ways of resolving dice and stuff, um, and just keeping on going with that for the longest time. And it's still... The fact that uh, this is the most concentric of all these circles means that there's still a lot of things to master as you 
corralled from there. Mm-hmm. But I think that that game is still really good, which I think is yes. one of the best things about Burning Leaf. It's a major strength of the system. Like that's there, there are there are idiom changes that you need to make, but but the big strength of the system is that it does survive mm-hmm. without all of these extra pieces. The idiom change is an interesting thing to bring up because that's actually part of what knocked Burning Wheel off of my list. Also, the the guess that you were going to pick it. Uh, <laughs> but part of what I think that Burning Wheel, uh, while I would argue that other games may require more mastery, is that the, um, the idioms of Burning Wheel are actually relatively familiar, not necessarily from D&D, but from other types of fantasy literature in particular. Um, if you've read... Uh, I mean, in some ways, Burning Wheel is a great system for like even Lord of the Rings. Uh, a lot of the fantasy touchstones that get referenced in regards to D&D, I would right. say actually fit better for Burning Wheel. Um, you could totally set up all... I'm sure somebody's done this online. Set up all the main car- the fellowship from Lord of the Rings... And that would actually probably give you most of the things. I guess Gandalf's spells might be a little off, but whatever. So are all his D&D spells. <laughs> but people, people are coming from the fantasy novels, right? The fantasy novels were a touchstone 40 years ago. But at this point, there are... They're coming from the movies. They're coming from... Well, <laughs> right. But a lot, of, a lot of those are coming out of... Like, like watch The Hobbit, mm-hmm. right? The three movies of The Hobbit are 70% look at this awesome fight or these great CGI things. Yes. And not, hey, my beliefs are really being challenged here. Yes. Right? And, and yeah, yeah, Luke's, Luke's stuff is built off of the good modern in even, you know, not quite modern fantasy novels that are that have all of this useful, interesting things going on and things that are not just, my character has a spell to deal with this. Uh, but I don't think that there are as many people coming to this game coming to to RPGs from that point as they're coming to RPGs from I want to hit stuff with my battle axe, right? That's a very uh, valid point. Like, I agree that a lot of people come to RPGs for I hit it with my battle axe, which is a great way and is a reason for D&D's enduring success because that is an awesome trope and a thing that people want. And this isn't to, like, cheapen that at all, but uh, I think that there are other touchstones that, like, the burning wheel beliefs instincts trait stuff you can easily parse out to other types of uh, media as well. Sure, like, sure, sure. You can look at, uh, we brought up, uh, we were talking earlier today, we brought up Lost, which Adam hasn't seen, so I can't even no, begin to talk about yeah. it. But um, a lot of the characters there, you can bring, you can parse those characters into beliefs, or you could do Primetime Adventures issues, which are both kind of flip sides on the same thing. Um, those are, I think that people, once you can help them have that insight to look at their favorite media, whatever that is, and look at what's driving those characters. Like, you can totally write up Batman's beliefs. Uh, well, various takes on Batman. There's so many takes on Batman. Which one has their own beliefs? But, uh, but I mean, like, like this, is, this is innermost concentric circle. We could talk about beliefs for weeks. Like, uh, like yeah. there are people that have been playing Burning Wheel for a long time and still have trouble coming up with really good beliefs. Well, but on that standard, I think you could say that uh, dungeon design in dungeon crawly RPGs has the same level of people have done it for years and can still talk about the intricacies like it's an art, not a science. Right, but the difference between 
okay, I'm going to build a couple of dungeons, and I've been building dungeons for 20 years, I feel is way smaller than the difference between uh, this is a belief that I just came up with, and I'm really good at writing beliefs. Oh, like, the guy that's know. really good at writing beliefs, here's a belief that the GM can take and build an entire scenario and setting out of. Here's a dungeon... When you're done with that dungeon, you're done with that dungeon. Or here's a dungeon and it's enormous, but they just did this enormous amount of world building, which is a totally different scope of effort, right? Like, I think that I've got a different appreciation for a well-designed dungeon than you do. Uh, I, I actually feel like the, the thing with the beliefs is that they, they take a lot of skill to write, but there are a lot of uh, references to come from. I mean, if, if you're ever in danger of trying to write a belief and you're having a hard time, you think of some drama-ish TV show, book, movie, whatever, think of some character who has some personal struggle, translate that into your, your situation, and that is a different level of mastery. You're not coming up with these things whole cloth, but it totally works most of the time, whereas a dungeon is, has all these moving parts to it. Like, it's it's almost back to the level of game design where you're... Uh, not just coming up with one thing that can drive play, you're coming up with an entire dungeon of interlocking things. And I, I think that raising beliefs to this level of they have to be these wonderful works of art is also achieving the system because part of the wonderful thing about Burning Wheel is that you can change your beliefs. Right. They're, they're meant to be changed in a lot of ways. As long as you're not trying to game the, game the system by constantly changing them, the whole point is that if one isn't working, you just swap it out. Sure. No, it's, it's a beautiful system. Um, dungeons... I don't know. I don't know about dungeons. The, the, one of the problems with dungeons to me is that uh, very few people are really going to take the time to craft a dungeon. True. Because uh, there are even random dungeon generators, right? And the random dungeon generator is not going to create something that's really interesting in play, but it'll create something that your players are going to go through and have a good time with. Because most of the games that use a dungeon that you are legitimately mapping out, the players are not going to care that, uh, yeah, the beholder, this is the beholder section of the dungeon, and you can tell that because of these bones here, and, and these people are eaten over here. Like, the, all of the stuff that you bake into a dungeon, to a, especially a modern play group that's played 10 years of D&D, mm -hmm. they're gonna say who cares where's the trap i need to know where the monster is i need to know the tactical situation i don't really care about all this care that you've put into this thing it doesn't make any difference to my character well but that's exactly where the mastery of dungeon design comes in like if you're just throwing in uh random things there as atmosphere or something you're you're doing a relatively poor job designing like you, uh, and even if you're throwing in details where atmosphere would work, um, this is something that really well-designed uh, dungeons and adventures in general do really well, is communicating a maximum amount of atmosphere that the GM can then use in a minimum amount of text instead of a maximum amount of details that the GM then has to be like, oh, wait, uh, you can tell that they, the scorch beams are actually a little above your head. Sorry about that. Like, that doesn't matter. You, you want the GM to be able to communicate a feel, which is a craft... Uh, the, the crafting something like that is, I think, more complex than a belief. But in D&D, only one person has to do the dungeon design. True. In Burning Wheel, everybody has to do beliefs. 
and here I am arguing for a game that's not even the one that I picked. Because uh, <laughs> interestingly, both of our top picks are Loot Crane games. Yeah, I think... So, this is the thing. Designing... Uh, well, I don't know, I guess. So, on the one hand... Designing a game that is simple enough to pick up and play and have a good time with is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and the games that we have that exist right now that are really pushing that, stuff like Microscope and Apocalypse World and Fate, that are, here are some dice, uh, make up a couple of things, go, and it will, the game will work out. Uh, and if it doesn't, you can... Totally switch and play something else. That's totally not new, but anyway. But, but, and I'm not saying that it's new. I'm saying I'm saying that it's relatively hard to do, even though it looks oh, straightforward, totally, right? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have enough time. Sorry, this letter was so long. Kind of thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but and Luke Crane's philosophy, I guess, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but the the way that his games end up designed is they are these beautiful watches. Uh, that are gonna take a while to absorb, and I think that that's also a ton of work. And doing the editing to drop it down so that they are these concentric circles, mm -hmm. so you have this innermost piece that you can play, and that part is simple, but then you can also take the game and add all of this massive amount of complexity that still works and still interlocks, is, is way more work than I want to do. Um, but that's game design work. I mean, I, I think that the part of... There are games that the effort and mastery that were put into creating them is an order of magnitude different than the mastery that goes into playing them. And I think that's actually true of most games. Right, and I think Even that those two, that... those two layer on top of each other, though, which is why I think Loot Crane games are at the top of both of our lists... Because, I mean, I've even got Dread and Pendragon on my massive runner-up list because mm -hmm. I feel like if you want to play them really well, you better do a lot of work to get into that right idiom and to understand that this is how you, you have to play this game differently than you're used to playing games. Mm -hmm. um, Pendragon but, was almost on my list as well, actually. Pendragon, so let's, okay, let's make it your third runner-up then. Uh, oh, your second I don't want to burn through so many games. <laughs> They're so good. Though. We, we can repeat. Nobody's going to listen to all these. Uh, so talk about Pendragon, because you only get to So Pendragon, I mean, I was deliberately committing myself to just two games, because I wasn't going to have this massive list, massive list of runners-up. But now that I'm going into runners-up, I'm actually going to go to two. Okay. Uh, two more. Um, so Pendragon is uh, this wonderful game of Arthurian legend, um, where specifically you're not playing Arthur or any of the knights you've heard of. You are playing these knights uh, and eventually their descendants through the entirety of Arthurian legend. Um which, first of all, takes a lot of rethinking of how you uh, run the game because it's against this massive backdrop that is already kind of known to everybody to some degree. Um, and the, the, really the best way to play Pendragon is to get the, um, the Great Pendragon Campaign, which is a book larger than the rules that goes over what happens uh, through the entirety of Arthur's life, actually starting before his life. Um, and this game, I've actually struggled with running it because uh, the the backdrop is so good, and the the concept of you know these long running knightly dynasties, and you know it matters uh, not just how you can actually fight, but the glory you can gain in battle, and all this stuff. Um, all that sounds really good, but making it work and play, I didn't quite have the idioms. Part of it is we, in some ways, we wanted to take all this Pendragon stuff and play Burning Wheel in front of the Pendragon <laughs> stuff. Uh, that, oh, that's the way my group works. But that misses... So, 
the Great Pendragon campaign, um, so my D&D background is with a group that was playing, that, that knows everything Forgotten Realms related. Mm-hmm. Ev- everything Forgotten Realms related this group is in, ha- knew about. They knew when their sessions were planned in the Forgotten Realms universe timeline. Mm-hmm. They knew what the year was down to, well, this is the year of this thing, and so this stuff is going on, and so let's build it in. And so, so having, having a campaign that exists in a, existed in a pre-existing setting, I'm used to that. The thing that I couldn't really get a handle on with Pendragon f- for a long time was that all of the player characters are... <sighs> you have stats in Pendragon based on actions that you want to take. Mm-hmm. And the stats in Pendragon will occasionally force you to take actions. Yes. And that is the big, massive mind shift for Pendragon. And, and we struggled with that a little bit, because the, the rules, uh, at least in the, the current edition that I have, I feel flip-flop on this a little bit, how much you're supposed to be bound by these things, and how much they are things that you want to do. Um, we ended up almost wanting something more along the lines of beliefs from Burning Wheel to some degree. Like we, they, they, we, it's important to have something that can get you into trouble. That's very uh, Arthurian. You know, you're too loving, and so you can't uh, turn away the un, unreasonable demands of your suitor or whatever. Um, but we had a hard time getting the actual dice there to work, and then the rest of the rules, like the combat stuff, always oh, yeah. came out really flat for us. Um, we we had a couple of wonderful sessions, and then a lot of mediocre ones, and we eventually gave up on it. Um, yeah, I feel like so the beliefs are the the I I feel like they're less beliefs and more instincts. Um, yeah, like yeah. you know, I will be loving in all scenarios type of thing, and they're they are there are instincts that you can attempt to avoid. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on the conflict rules. Uh, there's a ton of there's a ton of that game that is complex for it doesn't seem like very much reason. Yeah, uh, I uh, Greg's Pendragon is is Greg Stafford, I think, yes. and it's it's relatively old. I think it's in fourth edition at this point. Um, and I don't have enough experience with Pendragon to give Greg the faith that all of the rules are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's very likely it's very possible that they all are. Uh, and that we just don't know it. Um, but this is the problem with building a complex game that is not concentric, right? Yep. So, anyways. Yeah, you, you have to immediately invoke pretty much all of Pendragon. Uh, and then the, a couple of other challenges that we came across. The, by default, you are all the eldest sons of various houses. Right. Which doesn't give your characters a lot of reason to do any... Like, the there are... Plot things that draw you all together, which in the Great Pendragon campaign are sometimes very just like, no, Merlin just chooses you for some reason. Who cares? You go on the adventure. You all meet in Merlin's Tavern. Pretty much. You all meet in Merlin's Tavern. Uh, and we uh, like we ditched that because we, we were having a hard time getting all these eldest sons to... like. It, it felt like running three solo games that right. occasionally overlapped. So instead, we went with um, the eldest child and two younger child of a family that had some standing so you know all three get to become knights but one of them is definitely set up to inherit and then we also i mean we we tinkered pretty heavily because things weren't quite coming the way we wanted um we also actually added this whole thing where we decided that uh we didn't really want to deal with 
uh, women being totally just damsels to be saved and stuff. So we decided that in our setting, um, women are technically allowed to inherit, but are often like they're they're still uh, often skipped over because they're declared unfit or whatever. You know, oh, the moon had effects on her. Right. She's she's too flighty to be the heir. So our eldest was actually a woman, and uh, in we had to rethink all of a feudal <laughs> system with this. So whenever you arrange a marriage, you decide who is marrying into whose house, and like all we we dreamed up all this stuff, which actually didn't mess with the game dramatically. I was really worried that this was going to mess with. Hey, who knows? This... Maybe it did. Maybe the conflict rules are heavily dependent yeah, on, rules. On, on status of women in society. Right? But this, this stuff, at least for my group, I'm sure other groups would have a great thing, actually led to some of our best moments. Uh, the best thing we ended up with was um, somebody getting murdered and the players blaming uh, Uther's other son, basically. <laughs> and taking him hostage, and like, nice. And there, it turns out that it was, you know, a magical thing and all this stuff and whatever. But we had this great tense session of the two younger brothers who had before had been kind of like a, a bit at odds, uh, and they're not telling their older sister who's the one who could actually maybe negotiate a little bit more. And oh, it was a wonderful session, and a lot of that came from some of the changes that we made yeah. and from some of the focus like the the pendragon campaign is great for setting up things that happen each year in this wonderful backdrop but some of the ways it tries to weave the players into that backdrop are a little heavy-handed like i said like sometimes merlin just shows up and is like you're all coming with me why you because you're the player characters yeah um so number three uh, my, yes my, my third runner-up since we're just going crazy with this. Mad uh, with power. We'll run out of episodes within the year. (laughs) Um, The great thing is, I think we'll come back to some of these games and talk about other aspects of them. Hopefully. Uh, Hopefully. But the other one, and this is uh, a bit of a deep cut, is Continuum, which is a game of time travel. Um, And the reason that it, it requires a lot of mastery is because the majority of the book is not actually about the things that you normally associate with a role-playing game, like how to figure out if you manage to shoot somebody with a gun or run away fast enough or whatever, um, most of it is about the mechanics of time travel. Right. So it provides you this entire explanation of dealing with basically everything with, you know, what happens when you go back and kill your own mother? Well, this, this, and this, and you accumulate... uh, Oh, they don't call paradox. it paradox. Don't? It's basically paradox. Sure. I, I want to say they have a different term, but I of can't course they do. Because if it, it wouldn't be a time travel game if they didn't have a bunch of funny time travel. Uh, yes, journals. there are a bunch of. Uh, well, in all in the way that people become time travelers, it's like an innate gift. And when you figure out you have it, you kind of graduate into this fellowship of time travelers, and you're allowed to make a little bit of money off of it by like you know buying the lottery ticket that's going to win and stuff. But if you go too far, there's police kind of that come after you police. and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so the the real challenges to mastering this game um one of them is first of all understanding and explaining to everybody else how time travel works (laughs) Uh, because i'm serious the majority of the book and there if i remember there's some examples with like tearing and folding paper to help you explain how the time continuum Continuum. changes and all this the other real challenge is that um it's one of those games that to master it is to figure out what you do in the game. Right. Uh, like D&D has never had this problem. It's really easy to say, like, well, you go on an adventure, probably into a dungeon, probably to get something you need. Right. Uh, maybe to get, maybe that's money. Maybe it's something 
bigger and more important. But uh, the problem with Continuum, what are you here to do? You're here to... Uh, Maybe maybe you're trying to pull off a heist because you want more <laughs> money, but you can also travel through time. I mean, what's yeah. what's, what's the driving the scenario? Yeah, yeah, that's got to be. Oh man. So yeah, this is a really interesting game. I've always wanted to play it more because I've always had a problem of actually, like, you kind of sit down to play, you manage to get through a description of time travel, and then you're not quite sure how to start a session. Um, but yeah, it's kind of my white whale to actually run a good continuum game. And there's Time and Temp. Have you played Time and Temp? Time and Temp is, uh, on the other hand, completely jumps over why time travel works or anything. Right, because on a, it's it's like it's a Star Trek problem, right? Yeah. Uh, ideally, in fiction, uh, here's some crazy thing that enables plot. Mm-hmm. It works because insert techno babble here. Go now. Yeah. Continuum might have enough mechanics built around time travel that it kind of is it drives the game and it means that if you didn't have it the game just wouldn't work um but most fiction doesn't end up doing that kind of thing well no i mean i think that continuum is kind of like uh the movie um primer okay uh i mean that's what i've always imagined it to be like the reason that there has to be rules for this stuff is not that the rules for rolling the dice interact that much. It's because these rules are what it feels like should drive the action of the game. Okay. Like the, the idea that you can die, be dying once, jump away from that into a different point in time, but now you know to preserve the continuity of the continuum or whatever, uh, you have to get back to that moment to die. So if you die again, you're really in trouble. Like, all these things are, in theory, that's what the game should be about dealing with, is right. dealing with the rules of time travel, which is why it's important to have all this not do the time and temp thing. Uh, so time and temp is a game where you are temp workers sent through time to correct problems or whatever, and it very quickly glosses over a lot of the problems. Is that Epidiah's game, yes. by the way? Yes, Epidiah Ravichol? Ravichol? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his epi. Trying to give credit. Yes. Uh, and we'll, of course, link all these from the show notes, as usual. Uh, but the the thing there is that it really quickly glosses over why time travel exists, how you're not going to you know, get sick and die, how you're going to be able to communicate with people, how you're going to look like you fit in, uh, and why they would send temp workers back through time. The first ten questions that your players are going to ask. Exactly. All those are pretty much techno-babbled over. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll save it for the time travel episode where I can talk about microscope for extended periods of time. Microscope, But microscope, you're not actually traveling through time. We as the spectators are jumping through time. That's why we can have that argument. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, so I think Okay. I think the winner here is straight up Luke Crane. I was and, about to say it's and Luke Burning Crane. Wheel Headquarters. Like Luke Crane is the most complex game, right? So but the I hardest think, game to master. But the return on investment in those games is at least worth it. Yes, uh, like we could definitely uh, pull out other games where it is not. Um, and we didn't even talk about Burning Empires. Oh, Blossoms are falling. Um, and oh, what's the name of his other one? But anyway, uh, all of Luke's games fall into this uh, category of mastering. And the thing I always worry about saying that, we both agree that his games for either the idioms or some of the clockwork of them can all be very comp- uh, rewarding and tough to master. The thing I worry about saying that is that now we're going to scare people off of these awesome games. Yeah, oh man, totally worth it. But, but as you noted, um, grab the sword, grab the gift... 
grab grab something or find somebody at a con to play one of these games. Um, and Mouse Guard is also more accessible than his other games. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so grab Mouse Guard. I believe that it is either back in print now or about second to be. edition is coming. Uh, so so grab Mouse Guard. It uh, involves a lot of the upsides that we've been mentioning um, with. A little less requirement for mastery, or Torchbearer if you want to play more D and D style. Torchbearer, um, Torchbearer, I still feel is a step up from Mouse Guard in mastery requirements. There's pretty much anything that comes out of that studio is beautiful, uh, but uh, but but we'll take a bit of time. So I get a kick out of calling uh, Luke's crowded studio. It's, uh, it's right. Uh, come up with a with a different term if you like. The other thing that I really HQ. that's what they go by. Yeah, HQ. The other thing that they do that's really cool. Um, as a as a parting note here is is that they treat their materials as artifacts, yes. and and as as much as I hate not being able to have a PDF of Burning Wheel on hand, uh, the books are just amazing, and Torchbearer just holding the Torchbearer book makes me nostalgic and happy. Yes, so. and, and Torchbearer is definitely at the high end here. I will say that I feel like you can make a high quality book. And still sell the PDF and be just fine because uh, this is a story I've told a few people. When we ordered Dungeon World, we talked to various people who had already printed books. We ended up, uh, Luke was really cool. We went with his printer, and for the longest time, whenever they gave me a quote, it'd be a quote for Luke Crane books because we <laughs> used the exact same configuration of his books except with a few differences in uh, cover and size. I think he's at a smaller size than us. But anyway, for the most part, we are the exact same. The interior everything of Dungeon World and Burning Wheel is the same. Uh, so, And we do just fine selling our PDFs and books at the same time. Uh, in, in future episodes, we can do what is the best PDF role-playing game. What is it? <laughs> which and, and which that opens way, it up to just about everything. <laughs> that way we can drop Luke and make sure that we can cover yeah. the people. Uh, okay. Totally awesome. Well, that's uh, this week's episode. And, uh, well, th- I shouldn't say, I keep on saying this week, but we do these bi-weekly. So this is this two weeks episode. Oh, it's so hard. Maybe we should do weekly. Weekly is too much, though. We I know, would definitely run much. out of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. We, or we're not going to run out of stuff. We'll always have new aspects to talk about these existing games. We still have games in our queue that we both want to play. Definitely. We'll, we'll always have something. We'll figure it out. Uh Send us more questions, because it's awesome to use reader questions. That's way better than using our own. Yep. Uh, hit us on Google Plus at Plus Another Question, or uh, me, Adam Blinkensop, or Sage Latour. Uh, and then Twitter, AQ Podcasts. Yep, and, and we're on Facebook. Not many gamers on Facebook. Nobody cares, yeah, Facebook nobody cares about Facebook. Nobody cares about Facebook. But it, the, we get a fair number of people on Facebook and Google Plus. And uh, yes, yeah, so this is Adam Blinkensop, not Adam Kobol. We've made right. that mistake a few I times I am already. not that Adam. Uh, I obviously have a type of people to communicate or uh, collaborate with, which is people named Adam. So if you are an Adam and you would like to be on the show, <laughs> let us know. We can we can interview for a position. Cool. Well, uh, we will see all of you in two weeks. Woo.